Welcome to the 379th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Jim Nelson, author of the novel In My Memory Locked. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jim Nelson, author of The Bridge Daughter Cycle and his latest novel, In My Memory Locked. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great. If someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, In My Memory Locked, yet, how would you describe the novel? I would describe it as a science fiction detective book in the vein of Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett but set in the future, about 20 years from now. And do you remember the original idea that led you to write In My Memory Locked? Uh, actually, I do. It's interesting you should say that. When I was very young, a uh, teenager, I read a, a book called Neuromancer by William Gibson. This was a popular science fiction novel in the 1980s. It too was set in the future in a world where the people connect via cyberspace, the matrix. It was a wild concept at, at the time. Of course, it's not so wild anymore. The way that people would do this is by plugging computers into their heads and through their thoughts, were able to traverse this, this uh, futuristic internet. About 10 years later, I became very interested in the works of Raymond Chandler who's one of my favorite writers ever. He's an amazing writer. And he wrote in the 1930s and 40s about a private detective in Los Angeles. He, his books are about gangsters and city corruption and so on. And I'm not saying I was the first person to draw this connection, but at some point I began to realize that what William Gibson was writing about in this futuristic world and what Raymond Chandler was writing about in this 100 years from, from earlier were actually very similar stories. They were just, the settings were very different. And I had this idea a long time ago, I love to fuse the two, to take this sort of hard-boiled detective and put him into this futuristic world. And about five or six years ago, I began thinking about how to do that. And I, with some other ideas that I had, I began working on the novel. 
Great. Can you also tell us about your Bridge Daughter cycle novels? Sure. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. So the Bridge Daughter, it, it's a very different kind of book series. In to to put it, uh, I'm trying to think of an easy way of putting this, Bridge Daughter is set in an alternate universe that's very similar to our own. The the primary difference is biological. In those books, women don't give birth to their children. Rather, they give birth always to girls. And these girls are known as bridge daughters because they're born pregnant with the, the real child, so to speak. And they act as a surrogate. And when they're 13, they grow visibly pregnant. And they give birth to the real daughter, uh, son or daughter. And then they die. And so, these girls are treated almost, I won't say disposably. They're very closely guarded and protected. But they're not viewed as the way parents would normally view their children. And the first book was, is about a girl who is raised as a normal daughter. And then she learns when she's 13 that she's actually a bridge daughter. And that book was selected by Kendall Scout and was published by Amazon in 2016. And then I followed it up with two more books, Hagar's Mother and Stranger Son, which just came out earlier this year, which are, so it's turned, it's become like a family saga. Each book is a, as the next generation of this family who are coping with this very odd, this odd world. But of course, to them, that's all they know. So to them, that's the normal but they're all fighting it in some ways. They're not comfortable with it. So it sounds like your interests lie in the books that you've written so far in science fiction and in dystopic fiction. I'm curious, what were your earliest memories of reading in books or specifically science fiction? My earliest memories are with my mother. I was very fortunate as a young man when I was a child. My mother worked for a children's book publisher. She worked in one of the distribution warehouses on the West Coast. And so she would bring home remaindered books, extra books just for me to read. So we always had books around the, the house. And my earliest, the earliest book I remember reading is Encyclopedia Brown, which I devoured every copy of those books I could find. That led me to just become, that led to just really a lifetime of reading. And because before, before I began um, reading those books, I was more one of these kids like to be outside kicking a ball. I really didn't care about books. But my earliest memories of reading science fiction, I'm not really sure. I have a feeling it would have been either Isaac Asimov or Raymond, uh, Ray Bradbury, excuse me, who both of them had very, they, were, they wrote very optimistically about the future. They wrote a kind of science fiction that was vibrant and very alive. I, I can't exactly say that my books have the same tone, but yeah, I would say those are my earliest memories. Sure. So, what was your path later on to writing and then publishing your first novel? You talked about the Amazon Scout program. Sure. Can, you talk, can you talk about what led you to writing from those first experiences of reading Encyclopedia Brown and then later Isaac Asimov and Bradbury, et cetera? <laughs> Yeah, it, it again, it was Raymond Chandler that I think flipped the switch. When I was in my 20s, reading his books, I had never read anything like that. I had never read fiction that, that spoke that way with that kind of a narrator, that kind of a, a voice, and that kind of a perspective. And it was probably the first time it tickled me to think about what if I was to enter this conversation? Is there some way that I can write stories? It was also about the same time. This would have been about 1995. 
that I first built my first website long time ago. And I was writing, it, we didn't have the word blog back then, but that's what it was. It was a blog about living in Silicon Valley and working in high tech. I'm a software engineer by trade. And, but that was mostly like nonfiction. It was a, not quite a diary, but a humorous perspective on working in, during the first dot-com boom. And I had some, I had some good reaction to that. And I think the reaction that I received from some of those pieces were the ones that were more like stories rather than just me ranting or complaining about work or something like that. <laughs> and I began to wonder, could I actually give that a try? And in the late 90s, actually, I began writing short stories and I began working on my first novel. And it was only in the 2000s that I, or the I guess the 2010s, that I began looking at Kindle and Amazon and eBooks and saying, maybe this is an approach I should be considering. And that led me to, to the Kindle Scout program. And can you explain that? I'm not sure. Oh, if sure. Still, I'm not sure if they're still doing that, but can you explain how that worked? Yeah, no, they're not actually, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, Kindle Scout was an interesting experiment by Amazon. The way it worked was you, if you had a book and you had to have a complete book, it wasn't you didn't spec a book, you didn't propose a book. You you submitted the book and like a, a, a blurb and a summary and even a, a cover, a proposed cover for the book for the ebook rather to the Kindle Scout website. And usually it went, would go up within, as long as it met the bare minimum of requirements, it would go up within about four or five days. And at that point, it was available for nomination. So readers would go to the website and see all the different books that were being nominated. And you could download a sample copy or read it right there on the website. And if you like the book, you could vote for it essentially. And after 30 days, the Kindle editors, Kindle Scout editors, would decide if they wanted to take it on. And in my case, they did. And you received a contract and I received a, a stipend and they advertised and promoted it. So the idea was that it was the readers were telling the editors, these are the kind of books we want to read. And then the editors would publish those in ebook form. It was really interesting. I've There was really nothing like it. And it's unfortunate about, oh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, they ended the program. I've, I, I wrote a piece for Hidden Gems on their website, and I think it's a really interesting model, and it has the potential to get greater exposure for some of these writers, independent ebook writers who are serious about their craft, but could really just use maybe some backing of a larger organization to help spread the word. Sure. And so can you tell me your path in terms of writing? You mentioned being inspired by Chandler and really feeling like maybe there's something I have to contribute. And then you talked about your early blog, which was somewhat nonfiction that then morphed into fictional stories. Did you do any kind of creative writing program or classes along the way? Yeah, absolutely. In the 90s, as I started getting more serious about it, I would go to after our, after work and weekend like adult extension classes at UC Berkeley. And then I got more and more serious about it in the 2000s. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. 
It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I should add, I didn't have an undergraduate degree when I was working in software. I had dropped out of college. And so I decided, you know what? In my 30s, I said, I want to be serious about this. So I went back, finished my undergraduate degree in English Lit, and then went on to the MFA program in creative writing at San Francisco State and basically put my career on hold for about eight years while I was doing all that. I was living in a little 300 square foot apartment in San Francisco and eating (laughs) junk food and and just getting by on a part-time job. But it was a great experience and it gave me a chance to to learn, to broaden my scope and to think more broadly about what, what can be done with fiction and what are some of the possibilities. And when I, after I left the program, it was probably about three or four years after the program that I wrote Bridge Daughter. And that, I really do feel like the, all that work was worth it. I really feel like that all that time spent thinking about and, and writing short stories and such contributed to my novels. That's great. What writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? I, I would say what you want to read, first of all. That's That was something that was very important to me. I found myself, one thing I did find in the MFA program was the temptation to write the kind of stories that I thought editors wanted to read. Editors in literary magazines, for example. And I discovered that even though I'm, I might be able to do that and I might be able to get those stories published, I wasn't looking back on those stories fondly going, yeah, that's what I wanted to, I wanted to read. That's the kind of story I wanted to read. And when I decided that I would focus on the kind of fiction that I'm attracted to as a reader, it unlocked a lot of things. And, and I found myself much happier. The other thing is very pragmatically is you need to dedicate time to writing. And I'm fortunate. My wife gives me space when I say today's a day that I'm going to be sitting down and working on my novel. She says, okay. And, and you need to do that. There's always something else to do. People can always find things for you to do. There's always some chore around the house or something that has to happen. It's really important to, to dedicate quality time towards your writing. And the last piece of advice I give everybody is make sure you read. I've seen, I've heard too many writers say, yeah, I don't read because I'm afraid it'll influence my writing. And my feeling is that's what you want it to do. You, you want it to influence your writing. Obviously, you don't want to steal from somebody, but you need to keep, you need to keep fresh. You need to know what other people are writing. Like I said before, when I said I want to enter into the conversation, I view novels and short stories published everywhere is a kind of large global conversation, an ongoing conversation. You have to know what people are talking about to join that conversation. That's great. So are you working on another novel now? I am actually. I, I You're right. I, most of the work I've been writing so far is science fiction. This one isn't. It takes place in, in the here and the now. I finally found myself moved and distressed by our current pandemic that I wondered if I could write a story about living during COVID-19. And so I started a novel about four weeks ago about a security guard who has been furloughed because of the pandemic. And he's coming to grips um, with that. He's coming to grips with the disease 
and he's noticing some things that in his surroundings that he's not sure what they mean and he's he's looking into them so it's a thriller it's but very down to earth as well sure and i'm curious are you still juggling a, a software career as well as doing your writing and your novels yeah, I, I work for a nonprofit here in San Francisco. So uh, that takes a great deal of my time during the week. So I tend to write on the weekends. Got it. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed and would mention? Well, that's a great question. I actually picked up just recently The, the Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth. It's, I, it's a movie that back in the 70s that I really enjoyed. And I can't remember why, but I think I ran across it on Netflix or something, the movie version. I thought I should read that book. I've also been reading John Le Carre recently, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and, and have really enjoyed his work as well. I, it's amazing how much craft and care he brings to his books. I'm actually looking at my, uh, my bookcase. I have it right here. There's another book I read recently called The Expendable Man by Dorothy Hughes. The New York Review of Books has an imprint of it. That's excellent. It's, it's also a mystery story set in the 1960s about a man who may or may not be falsely accused of a pretty heinous crime. And it, that's an incredibly well done book as well. That's great. So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Sure. My website is j-nelson.net. And I have pages with all of my books listed, as well as links to where they can be um, purchased or you can download samples on Amazon. And I also maintain a blog where I about books that I've read and writing ideas and, and that kind of thing. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Jim Nelson, author of The Bridge Daughter Cycle and In My Memory Locked. The novels are available now, so go buy a copy. And Jim, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. Great. Now, stay tuned as Jim Nelson reads from his novel, In My Memory Locked. Ahead of the ferry, the rocky island concealed itself in the sloshing bay water like a hunched man lying in wait. With every tilt and sway of the ship, we inched closer to Alcatraz Island. The concrete fortress was precariously balanced atop the Alcatraz rocks, as though a swift kick would send it down to the rolling bay waters. Its brutalist architecture suggested no stylistic period other than the incarceration-happy 20th century. Back in the day, it was armed to the teeth. That rainy morning in 2038, I doubted there was so much as an air gun kept on the island. Emptied of prisoners before I was born, Converted to a tourist attraction, shuddered after the mystique faded, the deserted Alcatraz was repurposed once more in 2028. The island was no longer inhabited by murderers, bank robbers, or park rangers. Now it was inhabited by a government commission and its employees standing guard over the only remaining copy of the old internet. Dry deckhands in federal Blue peacoats emerged from the ferry's warm hold. Barehanded, emotionless, they unwound rope as thick as zoo boas from the top deck storage holds. When the ferry nudged against the pier, they tossed the lines over to the dock workers with nary a word shouted. Rain pelted them. Gusts sent sea spray across the deck and dock. 
Together, the men tamed the kicking ferry until it was tight against Alcatraz's only serviceable dock. The ferry crew dragged out a steel gangway from below deck and bridged the gap between watercraft and dry land. Three men waded up the path from the dock. Two were ancient and as long-bearded as Father Time. The third in the middle was slim and taller and tennis fit, with a trim gray Van Dyke beard outlining his mouth. All wore bespoke worsted wool suits and held black Lombard Street umbrellas that kept them surprisingly dry, considering the downpour. Mr. Neroy, the slim man said with the Van Dyke, called through the rain. The slim man cautiously extended from under his umbrella a dry, bony hand. I'm Dr. Elgin Clift, Chief Commissioner. We shook hands, two quick pumps. He withdrew his hand and wiped it on his trousers, eyes studying my pruned, bulbous face. This is Dr. Warwick and Dr. Marker. He motioned to the men on his left and his right. Let's get inside. Past the abandoned ticket booth once thronged by tourists, through multiple sets of double-braced steel doors, we reached the interior of the Stark prison. A welcoming warmth greeted us inside. On rubber mats, we stripped off our soaked jackets and hats and shook the rain off our umbrellas and sleeves. Out of his jacket and hat, the silver-haired Dr. Cliff demonstrated considerably more vigor than Warwick and Marker. Although he required a walking stick, his stride was brisk and energetic. The silver-plated tip of his walking stick clicked smartly when it struck the umber coating of the prison's concrete floor. Do you understand what we do here? Clift asked. Sure, I said. You guard the internet. The old internet. Guard? Cliff said, amused. You think we're keeping the old internet prisoner? Well, I said, considering the history of this place. We merely required a sizable and isolated location to keep the preserved data safe, Cliff said. Alcatraz was chosen for its square feet as much as its sturdy construction. We're not prison guards. You are keeping the old internet under lock and key, I said. You're keeping it read-only and protected from further modification. We're ensuring it's accessible to the world at large, Cliff said. People still enjoy connecting to the old internet to revel in the past. He pointed out the path we were to take through the cell house. Let me introduce you to Michigan Avenue. Michigan? When this was a penitentiary, the prisoners named each row of cells after famous American streets. Michigan Avenue, Broadway, and so on. Dr. Cliff led me down a seemingly endless corridor of prison cells, a mirror-into-mirror -mirror effect of steel bars and scaffolding receding to a vanishing point. Each cell still contained its hard cot and sink and toilet, although they were of no use to their occupants. Now within each cell stood a hulking data node, a flat black monolith as big as a restaurant freezer. It occupied each cell's rear wall from floor to ceiling. An array of warm blue dots pulsed randomly across its chest. Tubes delivered liquid nitrogen to keep each machine cool. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.